Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537, Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Chapter 33. Our Lady of Sorrows, quiet and welcoming in the bright beach night, humble in dimension, without groin vaults and grand columns and cavernous transepts, restrained in ornamentation, was as familiar to Maria Elena Gonzalez and as comforting as her own home. God was everywhere in the world, but here in particular. Maria felt happier the instant she stepped through the entrance door into the narthex. The benediction service had concluded, and the worshippers had departed. Gone, too, were the priests and the altar boys. After adjusting the hairpin that held her lace mantilla, Maria passed from the narthex into the nave. She dipped two fingers into the holy water that glimmered in the marble font and crossed herself. The air was spicy with incense and with the fragrance of the lemon oil polish used on the wooden pews. At the front, a soft spotlight focused on a life-size crucifix. The only additional illumination came from the small bulbs over the stations of the cross, along both side walls, and from the flickering flames in the ruby glass containers on the votive candle rack. She proceeded down the shadowy center aisle, genuflected at the chancel railing, and went to the votive rack. Maria could afford a donation of only 25 cents per candle, but she gave 50, stuffing five $1 bills and two quarters into the offering box. After lighting 11 candles, all in the name of Bartholomew Lampion, she took from her pocket the torn playing cards. Four knaves of spades. Friday night, she had ripped the cards in thirds and had been carrying the 12 pieces with her since then, waiting for this quiet Sunday evening. Her belief in fortune-telling and in the curious ritual she was about to undertake weren't condoned by the church. Mysticism of this sort was, in fact, considered to be a sin, a distraction from faith and a perversion of it. Maria, however, lived comfortably with both the Catholicism and the occultism in which she had been raised. In Hermosillo, Mexico, the latter had been nearly as important to the spiritual life of her family as had been the former. The church nourished the soul while the occult nourished the imagination. In Mexico, where physical comforts were often few, and hope of a better life in this world was hard won, both the soul and the imagination must be fed if life was to be livable. With the prayer to the Holy Mother, Maria held one-third of a nave of space to the bright flame of the first candle. When it caught fire, she dropped the fragment into the votive glass, and as it was consumed, she said aloud, For Peter, referring to the most prominent of the twelve apostles. She repeated this ritual eleven more times, for Andrew, for James, for John, frequently glancing into the nave behind her, to be sure that she was unobserved. She had lighted one candle for each of the eleven apostles, none for the twelfth, Judas, the betrayer. Consequently, after burning a fragment of the cards in each votive glass, she was left with one piece. Ordinarily, she would have returned to the first of the candles and offered the second fragment to St. Peter. In this case, however, she entrusted it to the least known of the apostles, because she was sure that he must have special significance in this matter. With all twelve fragments destroyed, the curse should have been lifted from little Bartholomew, the threat of the unknown, violent enemy who was represented by the four knaves. Somewhere in the world, an evil man existed who would one day have killed Barty, but now his journey through life would take him elsewhere. Eleven saints have been given twelve shares of responsibility for lifting this curse. Maria's belief in the efficacy of this ritual was not as strong as her faith in the church, but nearly so. 
As she leaned over the votive glass, watching the final fragment dissolve into ashes, she felt a terrible weight lifting from her. When she left Our Lady of Sorrows a few minutes later, she was convinced that the Knave of Spades, whether a human monster or the devil himself, would never cross paths with Barty Lampion. Chapter 14 Down she went, abruptly and hard, with a clatter and a thud, her natural grace deserting her in the fall, though she regained in her posture collapse. Victoria Bressler lay on the floor of the small foyer, left arm and center past her head, palm revealed, as though she were waving at the ceiling, right arm across her body in such a way that her hand cupped her left breast. One leg was extended straight, the other knee drawn up almost demurely. If she had been nude, lying against a backdrop of rumpled sheets or autumn leaves or metal grass, she would have had the perfect posture for a playboy centerfold. Junior was less surprised by a sudden assault on Victoria than by the failure of the bottle to break. He was, after all, a new man since his decision on the fire tower, a man of action, who did what was necessary. But the bottle was glass, and he swung forcefully, hard enough to smack her forehead with the sound of a mallet cracking against a croquet ball, hard enough to put her out in an instant, maybe even hard enough to kill her. Yet, the Merlot remained ready to drink. He stepped into the house, quietly closed the front door, and examined the bottle. The glass was thick, especially at the base, where a large punt, a deep indentation, encouraged sediment to gather along the rim, rather than across the entire bottom of the bottle. This design feature secondarily contributed to the strength of the container. Evidently, he had hit her with the bottom third of the bottle, which could most easily withstand the blow. A pink spot in the center of Victoria's forehead marked the point of impact. Soon, it will be an ugly bruise. The skull bone did not appear to be cratered. As hard of head as she was hard of heart, Victoria had not sustained serious brain damage, only a concussion. On the stereo in the living room, Sinatra sang, it was a very good year. Judging by the evidence, the nurse was home alone, but Junior raised his voice above the music and called out, Hello? Is anyone here? Although no one answered, he quickly searched the small house. A lamp with a fringed silk sage spread small feathery wings of golden light over one corner of the living room. On the coffee table were three decorative blown glass oil lamps, a shimmer. In the kitchen, a delicious aroma wafted from the oven. On the stove sat a large pot over a low flame, and nearby was pasta to be added to the water when it came to a boil. Dining room. Two place settings at one end of the table. Wine glasses. Two ornate pewter candlesticks. Candles not yet lit. Junior had the picture now. Clear as Kodachrome. Victoria was in a relationship, and she had come on to in the hospital not because she was looking for more action, but because she was a tease. One of those women who thought it was funny to get a man's juices up and then leave him stewing in them. She was a duplicitous bitch, too. After coming on to him, after teasing a reaction out of him, she had run off and gossiped about him as if though he had instigated the seduction. Worse, to make herself feel important, she had told the police her skewed version, surely with much colorful embellishment. A half bath downstairs, two bedrooms and a full bath on the upper floor, all deserted. In the foyer again, Victoria hadn't moved. Junior note beside her and pressed two fingers into the carteret artery in her neck. She had a pulse, maybe a little irregular, but strong. Even though he now knew what a hateful person the nurse was, he remained strongly attracted to her. 
He was not the kind of man, however, who would take advantage of an unconscious woman. Besides, she was clearly expecting a guest to arrive soon. You're early. I didn't hear your car, she said as she answered his knock before realizing it was Junior. He stepped to the front door, which was framed by curtain side lights. He drew one of the curtains aside and peered out. The mummified moon unwound itself from its rags of embalming clouds. Its pocked face glowered in full brightness on the spreading branch of the pine on the yard and on the gravel driveway. No car. In the living room, he removed a decorative pillow from the sofa. He carried it into the foyer. I told the police about your disgusting little come on with the ice spoon. He assumed she hadn't phoned the police to make a formal report. No need to go out of her way to slander Junior when Thomas Vanadium had been prowling the hospital at all hours of the day and night, ready to lend an ear to any falsehood about him, as long as it made him appear to be a sleazeball and a wife killer. More likely than not, Victoria spoke directly to the maniac detective. Even if she reported her sordid fabrications to another officer, it would have gotten back to Vanadium, and the cop would have sought her out at once to hear her filth firsthand, whereupon she would have enhanced her story until it sounded as though Junior had grabbed her knockers and tried to shove his tongue down her throat. Now, if Victoria reported to Vanadium that Junior had shown up at her door with a red nose and a bottle of Merlot and were romance on his mind, the demented detective would have been on his ass again for sure. Vanadium might think that the nurse had misinterpreted the business with the ice spoon, but the intent in this instance would have been unmistakable, and the crusading cop, the holy fool, would never give up. Victoria moaned, but did not stir. Nurses were supposed to be angels of mercy. She has shown him no mercy, and she was certainly no angel. Kneeling at her side, Junior placed a decorative pillow over her lovely face and pressed down firmly, while Frank Sinatra finished Hello Young Lovers and sang perhaps half of all or nothing at all. Victoria never regained consciousness, never had a chance to struggle. After checking her carteret artery and feeling no pulse, Junior returned to the sofa in the living room. He fluffed the little pillow and left it precisely as he had found it. He felt no urge whatsoever to puke. Yet, he didn't fault himself for a lack of sensitivity. He had met this woman only once before. He wasn't emotionally invested in her as he had been in his sweet Naomi. He wasn't wholly without feeling, of course. A poignant current of sadness eddied in his heart. A sadness at the thought of the love and happiness that he and the nurse might have known together. But it was her choice, after all, to play the tease and to deal with him so cruelly. When Junior tried to live Victoria, her voluptuousness lost its appeal. As dead weight, she was heavier than he expected. In the kitchen, he sat her in a chair and let her slump forward over the kitchen table. With her arms folded, with her head on her arms turned to one side, she appeared to be resting. Heart racing, but reminding himself the strength and wisdom of Rose McCall's mind, Junior stood in the center of the small kitchen, slowly turning to study every angle of the room. With the dead woman's guests on the way, minutes were precious. Attention to detail was essential, however, regardless of how much time was required to properly stage a little tableau that might disguise murder as a domestic accident. Unfortunately, Caesar Zed had not written a self-help book on how to commit homicide and escape the consequences thereof, and as before, Junior was entirely on his own. With haste and an economy of movement, he set to work. First, he tore two paper towels from a wall-mounted dispenser and held one in each hand as makeshift gloves. He was determined to leave no fingerprints. Dinner was cooking in the upper of the two ovens. He switched on the bottom oven, 
setting it at warm, and dropped open the door. In the dining room, he picked up the two dinner plates from the place settings. He returned with them to the kitchen and put them in the lower oven, as though Victoria were using it as a plate warmer. He left the oven door open. In the refrigerator, he found a stick of butter in a container with a clear plastic lid. He took the container to the cutting board beside the sink, to the left of the cooktop, and opened it. A knife already lay on the counter nearby. He used it to slice four pats of butter, yellow and creamy, each half an inch thick off the end of the stick. Leaving three of the pats in the container, he carefully placed the fourth on the vinyl tile floor. The paper towels were spotted with butter. He crumpled them and threw them into the trash. He intended to mash the sole of Victoria's right shoe in the pat of butter and leave a long smear on the floor, as though she slipped on it and fell towards the ovens. Finally, holding her head in both hands, he would have to smash her brow with considerable force into the corner of the open oven door, being careful to place the point of impact precisely where the bottle had struck her. He supposed that the Scientific Investigation Division of the Oregon State Police might find at least one reason to be suspicious of the tragic scenario that he was creating. He didn't know much about the technology the police might employ at a crime scene, and he knew even less about forensic pathology. He was just doing the best job he could. The Spruce Hills Police Department was far too small to have a full-blown scientific investigation division. And if the tableau presented to them appear convincing enough, they might accept the death as a freak accident and never turn to the state police for technical assistance. If the state police did get involved, and even if they found evidence that the accident was staged, they'll most likely point the finger of blame at the man for whom Victoria had been preparing dinner. Nothing remained to be done but to press her shoe into the butter and hammer her head into the corner of the oven door. He was about to lift the body out the chair when he heard the car in the driveway. He might not have caught the sound of the engine so distinctly and early if the stereo had not been in the process of changing albums. No time now to arrange a corpse reviewing. One crisis after another, this new life as a man of action was not dull. In adversity lies great opportunity, as Caesar's Ed teaches, and always, of course, there is a bright side even when you aren't able immediately to see it. Junior hurried out the kitchen along the hallway to the front door. He ran silently, landing on his toes like a dancer. His natural athletic grace was one of the things that drew so many women to him. Sad symbols of a romance not meant to be, the red rose and a bottle of wine lay on the floor of the foyer. With the corpse gone, no sign of violence remained. As Sinatra began to sing, I'll be seeing you, Junior stepped around the bloom in the Merlot. He cautiously peeled back two inches of the curtains at one of the sidelights. A sedan came to a stop in the gravel driveway, over to the right of the house, almost out of view. As Junior watched, the headlights were doused. The engine shut off. The driver's door opened. A man got out of the car, a shadowy figure in the fearsome yellow moonlight. The dinner guest. Chapter 35 Implode To burst inward under pressure Like the hull of a submarine at too great a depth Junior had learned implode from a self-help book About how to improve your vocabulary And be well spoken At the time, he had thought that this word Amongst others in the list he had memorized Was one he would never use Now it was a perfect description of how he felt As if he were going to explode The dinner guest leaned back into the car As though to retrieve something Perhaps he, too, had been considerate enough to bring a small gift for his hostess. When Victoria failed to answer the door, this man would not simply go away. 
He had been invited. He was expected. Lights were on in the house. The lack of a response to his knock would be taken as a sign that something was amiss. Junior was at critical depth. The psychological pressure was at least 5,000 pounds per square inch and growing by the second. Implosion imminent. If he were left standing on the porch, the visitor would circle the house, peering in windows where the drapes were not drawn, trying the doors in hopes of finding one unlocked. Fearful that Victoria was sick or injured, that perhaps she had slipped on a pat of butter and cracked her head against the corner of an open oven door, he might try to force his way inside, break a window. Certainly he would go to the neighbors to call the police. 6,000 pounds per square inch. 8. 10. Drinker sprinted into the dining room and snatched one of the wine glasses off the table. He seized one of the pewter candlesticks as well, knocking the candle out of it. In the foyer again, about six feet inside the front door, he stood the wine glass on the floor. He placed a bottle of Merlot beside the glass, the red rose beside the bottle, like a still-life painting titled Romance. Outside, a car door slammed. The front entrance wasn't locked. Junior quietly turned the knob and pulled gently, letting the door drift inward. Carrying the candlestick, he raced to the kitchen at the end of the short hall. The door stood open, but he had to enter the room to see Victoria slumped in one of the two chairs at the small dinette. He slipped behind the door and raised the pewter candlestick over his head. Weighing perhaps five pounds, the object made a formidable bludgeon, almost as good as a hammer. His heart knocked furiously. He was breathing hard. Strangely, the aroma of dinner cooking, previously delicious, now smelled like blood to him, pungent and raw. Slow, deep breaths. Per Zed, slow, deep breaths. Any state of anxiety, regardless of how powerful, could be ameliorated or even dissipated altogether by taking slow, deep breaths. Slow, deep breaths. And by remembering that each of us has a right to be happy, to be fulfilled, to be free of fear. Over the final refrain of I'll be seeing you came a man's voice from the foyer, raised quizzically, with perhaps a note of surprise. Victoria? Slow and deep. Slow and deep. Calmer already. The song ended. Junior held his breath, listening. In the brief silence between cuts on the album, he heard the clink of the wine glass against the bottle of Merlot, as the visitor evidently gathered them from the floor. He had assumed that the dinner guest was Victoria's lover, but suddenly he realized that might not be the case. The man might be nothing more than a friend, her father, or a brother, in which case the invitation to romance, posed by the coquettishly arranged wine and rose, would be so wildly inappropriate that the visitor would know at once something was wrong. Beotian. Another word learned to enhance vocabulary and never before used. Beotian. A dull, obtuse, stupid person. He felt very Beotian all of a sudden. Just as Sinatra broke in a song again, Junior thought he heard a footstep on the wood floor of the hallway and the creak of a board. The music masked the sounds of the visitor's approach, if, indeed, he was approaching. Raise high the candlestick. In spite of the masking music, breathe shallowly and through the mouth. Remain poised, ready. The pewter candlestick was heavy. This would be messy work. Gore made him sick. He refused to attend movies that dwelt on the consequences of violence, and he had even less of a sum for blood in real life. Action. Just concentrate on action and ignore the disgusting aftermath. 
remembered a runaway train and the bus full of nuns stuck on the tracks. Stay with the train. Don't go back to look at the smashed nuns. Just keep moving forward and everything will be alright. A sound. Very close. The other side of the open door. Here, now, the dinner guest, entering the kitchen. He carried the wine glass and a rose in his left hand. The Merlot was tucked under his arm. In his right hand was a small, brightly wrapped gift box. As he entered, the visitor's back was to Junior, and he moved toward the table, where dead Victoria sat with her head on her folded arms. She looked for all the world as though she were just resting. What's this? the man asked her, as Sinatra swooped through Come Fly With Me. Stepping forward lightly, lightly, as he swung the candlestick, Junior saw the dinner guest stiffen, perhaps sensing danger or at least movement, but it was too late. The guy didn't even have time to turn his head or duck. The pewter bludgeon slammed into the back of his skull with a hard puck. The scalp tore, blood sprang forth, and the man fell as hard as Victoria had fallen under the influence of a good Merlot. Although he went face down, not face up as she had done. Taking no chances, Junior swung the candlestick again, bending down as he did so. The second impact was not as solid as the first. A glancing blow, but effective. Dropped, the wine glasses shattered, but the bottle of Merlot had survived again, rolling across the vinyl tile floor until it bumped gently against the base of a cabinet. Slow, deep breathing forgotten, gasping like a drowning swimmer, a sudden sweat dripping from his brow. Junior used one foot to prod the fallen man. When he got no response, he wedged the toe of his right loafer under the guy's chest and, with some effort, rolled him onto his back. Clutching the red rose in his left hand, the brightly wrapped gift box half-crushed in his right, Tom's vanadium lay at Junior's mercy. With no tricks to perform, the magic gone. The magic gone. Chapter 36 The crisp crackle of faux flames, the way they made them in the days of radio dramas, back in the 1930s and 40s, when he was a boy. Crumpling cellophane. Hmm, let me try that. Nah, I can't see it. Sitting alone at the corner table at the kitchen out of his apartment, Jacob made more fire sounds as he stripped the clear cellophane off a second new deck of playing cards, then off a third and a fourth. He possessed vast files on tragic fires, and most of them were committed to memory. In Vienna's magnificent Ring Theater, December 8, 1881, a blaze claimed 850 lives. On May 25, 1887, 200 dead at the Opera Comique, Paris. November 28, 1942, in the Coconut Grove nightclub in Boston, when Jacob was only 14 years old and already obsessed with humanity's sorry penchant for destroying itself, either by intention or ineptitude. 491 suffocated and burned alive on an evening meant for champagne and revelry. Now, after removing the four decks of cards from the pressboard packs in which they had come, Jacob lined them up side by side on the scarred maple top of the table. When the Iroquois Theater in Chicago burned on December 30th, 1903, he said aloud, testing his memory, during a matinee of Mr. Bluebeard, 602 people perished, mostly women and children. Standard decks of playing cards are machine-packed, always in the same order, according to suits. You can absolutely count on the fact that each deck you open will be assembled in precisely the same order as every other deck you have ever opened or ever will open. This unfailing consistency of packaging enables card mechanics, 
professional gamblers, sleight of hand magicians to manipulate a new deck with confidence that they know, starting where every card can be found in the stack. An expert mechanic with practice and dexterous hands can appear to shuffle so thoroughly that even the most suspicious observer will be satisfied. Yet he will still know exactly where every card is located in the deck. With masterly manipulation, he can place the cards in the order that he wishes to achieve whatever effect he desires. July 6, 1944, in Hartford, Connecticut, a fire broke out in the Great Tent of the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus at 2.40 in the afternoon. While 6,000 patrons watched the Walendas, a world-famous high-wire troupe, ascend to begin their act. By 3 o'clock, the fire burned out, following the collapse of the flaming tent, leaving 168 dead. Another 500 people were badly injured, but 1,000 circus animals, including 40 lions and 40 elephants, were not harmed. Uncommon dexterity is essential for anyone who hopes to become a highly skilled card mechanic, but it is not the sole requirement. A capacity to endure grim tedium while engaging in thousands of hours of patient practice is equally important. The finest car mechanics also exhibit complex memory function of a breadth and depth that the average person would find extraordinary. May 14, 1845, in Canton, China, a theater fire killed 1,670. On December 8, 1863, a fire in the Church of La Campana in Santiago, Chile, left 2,501 dead. 150 perished in the fire at a Paris charity bazaar. May 4, 1897. June 30, 1900, a dock fire in Hoboken, New Jersey killed 326. Jacob had been born with the requisite dexterity and more than sufficient memory function. His personality disorder, which made him unemployable and guaranteed that his social life would never involve endless rounds of parties, ensured that he had the free time needed to practice the most difficult techniques of car manipulation until he mastered them. Because, since childhood, Jacob had been drawn to stories and images of doom, to catastrophe on both the personal and planetary scale, from theater fires to all-out nuclear war. He had a flamboyant imagination second to none, and a colorful, if peculiar, intellectual life. For him, therefore, the most difficult part of learning car manipulation had been coping with the tedium of practice. But for years, he had applied himself diligently, motivated by his love and admiration for his sister, Agnes. Now, he shuffled the first of the four decks precisely as he had shuffled the first deck on Friday evening, and he set it aside. To have the best chance of becoming a master mechanic, any young apprentice needs a mentor. The art of total car control cannot be learned entirely from books and experimentation. Jacob's mentor had been a man named Obadiah Separat. They had met when Jacob was 18, during a period when he had been committed to a psychiatric war for a short time his eccentricity having been briefly mistaken for something worse. As Obadiah taught him, he shuffled the remaining three decks. Neither Agnes nor Edom knew of Jacob's great skill with cards. He had been discreet about his apprenticeship with Obadiah, and for almost 20 years, he had resisted the urge to dazzle his siblings with his expertise. As kids, living in a house that was run like a prison, Stifled by the obsessive rule of a morose father who believed that any form of entertainment was an offense against God, they conducted secret card games their primary act of rebellion. A deck of cards was small enough to hide quickly and to keep hidden successfully even during one of their father's painstakingly thorough room searches. When the old man died and Agnes inherited the property, 
the three of them played cards in the backyard for the first time on the day of his funeral. Play openly rather than in secret, almost giddy with freedom. Eventually, when Agnes fell in love and married, Joey Lampion joined their card games. And thereafter, Jacob and Edom enjoyed a greater sense of family than they had ever known before. Jacob had become a card mechanic for one purpose. Not because he'd ever be a gambler. Not to wow friends with card tricks. Not because the challenge intrigued him. He wanted to be able to give Agnes winning cards once in a while, if she was losing too frequently or needed to have her spirits lifted. He didn't feed her winning hands often enough to make her suspicious or to make the games less fun for Edom or Joey. He was judicious. The effort he expended, the thousands of hours of practice, was repaid with interest each time Agnes laughed with delight after being dealt a perfect hand. If Agnes knew that Jacob had been helping her game, she might never play cards with him again. She would not approve of what he had done. Consequently, his great skill as a card mechanic must be forever his secret. He felt some guilt at this, but only a little. His sister had done so much for him, but jobless, ruled by his obsessions, hobbled by too much of his father's dour nature, there wasn't a lot he could do for her. Just this benign deceit with the cards. September 20th, 1902, Birmingham, Alabama, church fire, 115 dead. March 4th, 1908, Collinwood, Ohio, school fire, 176 dead. Having shuffled all four stacks of cards, Jacob cut two decks and shuffled the halves together, controlling them exactly as he had controlled them on Friday evening. Then the other two halves. New York City, March 25th, 1911. The Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire, 146 dead. Friday, after dinner, when he had heard enough of Maria's method of fortune-telling to know that four decks were required, that only every third card was red, and that aces, especially red aces, were the most propitious cards to receive, Jacob had taken great pleasure in preparing for Barty the most favorable first eight cards that could possibly be dealt. This was a small gift to cheer Agnes, on whose heart Joey's death weighed as heavily as iron chains. At first, all had gone well. Agnes, Maria, and Eden were rightly amazed. A thrill of wonder and big smiles all around the table. They were enthralled by the astoundingly favorable fall of cards, a breathtaking mathematical improbability. April 23, 1940, Natchez, Mississippi, Dance Hall Fire, 198 dead. December 7, 1946, Atlanta, Georgia, the Weinkoff Hotel Fire, 119 dead. Now, on his kitchenette table, two nights after Maria's reading, Jacob finished integrating the four decks as he had done Friday in the dining room in the main house. His work completed, he sat for a while, staring at the stack of cards, hesitant to proceed. April 5th, 1949, Effingham, Illinois. A hospital fire killed 77. In his voice, he heard a tremor that had nothing to do with the hideous deaths of Effingham more than 16 years previous. First card, Ace of Hearts. Discard two. Second card, Ace of Hearts. He continued until four aces of hearts and four aces of diamonds were on the table in front of him. These eight draws he had prepared, and this effect was his intention. Mechanics have reliably steady hands, yet Jacob's hands shook as he discarded two cards and slowly turned over the ninth draw. This ought to be a four of clubs, not a jack of spades. And a four of clubs it was. He turned over the two most recent discards. Neither was a jack of spades, and both were what he expected them to be. 
He looked at the two cards following the four of clubs in the stack. Neither of these was a jack of spades either, and both were what he anticipated. On Friday evening, he had arranged for the drawing of the aces, but he had not stacked the subsequent 12 cards to provide for the selection of four identical knaves at three card intervals. He had sat in stunned disbelief as he watched Maria turn them over. The odds against drawing a jack of spades four times in a row out of four combined and randomly shuffled decks was forbidding. Jacob didn't have the knowledge necessary to calculate those odds, but he knew they were astronomical. Of course, there was no possibility whatsoever of drawing four identical jacks from combined decks that had been exquisitely manipulated and meticulously arranged by a master mechanic. Unless the effects of the jacks were intended, which in this case, it was not. The odds couldn't be calculated because it could never happen. No element of chance was involved here. The cards in that stack should have been as predictably ordered to Jacob as were the number of pages in a book. Friday night, mystified and troubled, he hadn't slept much, and each time that he dozed off, he had dreamed of being alone in a bosky woods, stalked by a sinister presence, unseen but undeniable. This predator crept in silence through the underbrush, indistinguishable from the lowering trees amongst which it glided, as fluid and as cold as moonlight, but darker than the night, gaining on him relentlessly. Each time that he sensed it springing towards him for the kill, Jacob woke, once with Barty's name on his lips, calling out to the boy as though in warning, and once with two words, the knave. Saturday morning, he walked to a drugstore in town and purchased eight decks of cards. With four, he passed the day recreating again and again what he had done at the dining room table the previous evening. The four knaves never appeared. By the time he went to bed Saturday night, the cards that had been new only that morning were showing signs of wear. In the dark woods of the dream, still the presence, faceless and silent, radiating a merciless intent. Sunday morning, when Agnes returned from church, Edom and Jacob joined her for lunch. During the afternoon, Jacob helped her bake seven pies for Monday delivery. Throughout the day, he tried not to think about the four knaves. But he was an obsessive, of course, so in spite of all his trying, he did not succeed. Sunday evening, here he was, cracking open four new decks, as if fresh cards might enable the magic to repeat. Ace, 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 Ace of Hearts. December 1st, 1958, in Chicago, Illinois, a parochial school fire killed 95. Ace, 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 Ace of Diamonds. Four clubs. If magic explained the jacks on Friday evening, maybe it was a dark variety of magic. Maybe he shouldn't be endeavoring to summon once more whatever spirit was responsible for the four knaves. July 14th, 1960, in Guatemala City, Guatemala, a fire in a mental hospital, 225 dead. Curiously, reciting these facts usually calmed him, as though speaking of disaster will ward it off. Since Friday, however, he had found no comfort in his usual routines. Reluctantly, Jacob finally returned the cards to the packs and admitted to himself the superstition that seized him and would not let go. Somewhere in the world was a knave, a human monster, even worse according to Maria, a man as fearsome as the devil himself, and for reasons unknown, this beast wanted to harm little Barty, an innocent baby. By some grace that Jacob could not understand, they had been warned through the cards that the knave was coming. They have been warned.
Chapter 37. Puddle on the pan-flat face, the port wine birthmark. In the center of the stain, the closed eye, concealed by a purple lid, as smooth and round as a grape. The sight of vanadium on the kitchen floor gave Junior Kane the greatest fright of his life. He jumped inside his skin, and his heart knocked, knocked, and he half expected to hear his bones rattle one against another, like those of a dangling skeleton in a funhouse. Although Thomas Vanadium was unconscious, perhaps even dead, and though both nail-head gray eyes were closed, Junior knew those eyes were watching him, watching through the lids. Maybe he went a little crazy then. He wouldn't deny a brief, transient madness. He didn't realize he was swinging the candlestick of Vanadium's face until he saw the blow land. And then, he couldn't stop himself from swinging it yet once more. The next thing he knew... He was at the kitchen sink, turning off the water, which he couldn't remember having turned on. He appeared to have watched the bloody candlestick. It was clean, but he had no recollection of this bit of housekeeping. Blink, and he was in the dining room without knowing how he had even gotten there. The candlestick was dry. Holding his pewter bludgeon with a paper towel, Junior replaced it on the table as he had found it. He picked up the candle from the floor and married it to the stick. Blink. The living room. Turning off Sinatra halfway through, it gets lonely early. The music had been his ally, masking his panicky breathing from vanadium, lending an aura of normalcy to the house. Now he wanted silence, so he would immediately hear another car in the driveway if one arrived. The dining room again, but this time he remembered how he had gotten here, by way of the living room. He opened the solid doors on the bottom of the break front, did not find what he was looking for, Checked in the sideboard next, and there it was. A small liquor supply. Scotch, gin, vodka. <sniffs> Scotch is cool, I guess. He selected a full bottle of vodka. You know what? I have had vodka that was good before. But you know what they did? They literally stuffed, cut strawberries into the bottle, and then filled it up with vodka. So it became vodka-infused strawberries. That's different. Vodka by itself, though, I can't. At first, he couldn't gather the nerve to return to the kitchen. He was crazily certain that in his absence, the dead detective would have risen and would be waiting for him. The urge to flee the house was almost irresistible. Rhythmic breathing, slow and deep. Slow and deep. Per Zed, the route to tranquility is through the lungs. He didn't allow himself to ponder why Vanadium had come here or what relationship might have existed between the cop and Victoria. All that was for later consideration, after he had dealt with this unholy mess. Eventually, he approached the door between the dining room and the kitchen. He paused there, listening. Silence beyond, in the kitchen that had become an abattoir. Of course, when turning the quarter across his knuckles, the cop had made no noise, and he had glided across the hospital room, in the dark, with feline stealth. In his mind's eye, Junior saw the coin in transit of the blunt fingers, moving more swiftly than previously because his patches was lubricated by blood. Shuddering with dread, he placed one hand against the door and slowly pushed it open. The maniac detective was still on the floor where he had died. The red rose in the gift box occupied his hands. Overlaying the birthmark were brighter stains. The plain face, less homely now, was less flat too pocked and tore into a new and horrendous geography. In the name of Zed, slow, 
deep breaths. Focus not on the past, not on the present, but only on the future. What has happened is of no importance. All that matters is what will happen next. The worst was behind him. So keep moving. Don't get hung up on the disgusting aftermath. Keep whistling along like a runaway train. Clean up, clean out, roll on. Fragments of a broken wine glass crunched under his shoes as he crossed the small kitchen to the dinette. He opened a bottle of vodka and put it on the table in front of the dead woman. His previous plan to create a tableau, butter on the floor, of an open door, to portray Victoria's death as an accident was no longer adequate. A new strategy was required. Vanadium's wounds were too grievous to pass for accidental injuries. Even if there were some way to disguise them through clever staging, no one would believe that Victoria had died in a freak fall and that Vanadium, rushing to her side, had slipped and tumbled and sustained mortal head injuries as well. Such a strong whiff of slapstick would put even the Spruce Hills police onto the scent of murder. Okay, so orbit this moon of a problem and find its bright side. After taking a minute to steal himself, Junior squatted next to the dead detective. He did not look at the battered face. Dare to meet those shuttered eyes, and they might spring open, full of blood, and fix him with a crucifying stare. Many police agencies required an officer to carry a firearm, even when off-duty. If the Oregon State Police had no such rule, Vanadium most likely carried one anyway, because in his crazy-as-a-snake mind, he was never a private citizen, always a cop. Always a relentless crusader. A quick tug on each pants cuff revealed no ankle holster, which was how many cops would choose to carry an off-duty piece. Averting his eyes from Vanadium's face, Junior moved farther up the stocky body. He folded back the tweed sports jacket to reveal a shoulder holster. Junior didn't know much about guns. He didn't approve of them. He never owned one. This was a revolver. No safety to figure out. He fiddled with the cylinder until it swung open. Five chambers, a gleaming cartridge in each. Snapping the cylinder into place, he rose to his feet. Already he had a new plan, and the cop's revolver was the most important tool that he required to implement it. Junior was pleasantly surprised by his flexibility and by his audacity. He was, indeed, a new man, a daring adventurer, and by the day he grew more formidable. The purpose of life was self-fulfillment, per Zed, and Junior was so rapidly realizing his extraordinary potential that surely he would have pleased his guru. Sliding Victoria's chair away from the table, he turned her to face him. He adjusted her body so her head was tipped back and her arms were hanging slack at her sides. Beautiful she was, both of face and form, even with her mouth gaping wide and her eyes rolled back in her skull. How bright her future might have been if she had not chosen to deceive. A tease was, in essence, a deceiver, promising what she never intended to deliver. Such behavior as hers was unlikely to lead to self-discovery, self-improvement, and fulfillment. We make our own misery in this life. For better or worse, we create our own futures. I'm sorry about this, Junior said. Then he closed his eyes, held the revolver in both hands, and at point-blank range he shot the dead woman twice. The recoil was worse than he expected. The revolver bucked in his hands. Off the hard surface of the cabinet, refrigerator, and ovens, the twin reports crashed and rattled. The window panes briefly thrummed. Dream wasn't concerned that the shots would attract unwanted attention. 
These large rural properties and a plenitude of muffling trees made it unlikely that the nearest neighbor would hear anything. With the second shot, the dead woman tumbled out of her chair, and the chair clattered onto its side. Junior opened his eyes and saw that only the second of the two rounds had found its intended mark. The first had cracked through the center of a cabinet door, surely shattering dishes within. Victoria lay face up on the floor. The nurse no longer as lovely as she had been, and perhaps because of early rigor mortis, her grace, which had initially been evident even in death, had now deserted her. I really am sorry about this, Junior said, regretting the necessity to deny her the right to look good at her own funeral. But it's got to appear to be a crime of passion. Standing over the body, he squeezed out the last three shots. Finish. He detested guns more than ever. The air stank of gunfire and pot roast. With a paper towel, Junior wiped the revolver. He dropped it on the floor beside the riddled nurse. He didn't bother to press Vanadium's hand around the weapon. There wasn't going to be a wealth of evidence for the Scientific Investigation Division to sift through anyway when the fire was finally put out. Just enough charred clues to allow them an easy conclusion. Two murders and an act of arson. Junior was being a bold boy this evening. Not a bad boy. He didn't believe in good and bad, in right and wrong. There were effective actions and ineffective actions, socially acceptable and unacceptable behavior, wise and stupid decisions that could be made. But if you wanted to achieve maximum self-realization, you had to understand that any choice you made in life was entirely value neutral. Morality was a primitive concept, useful in earlier stages of societal evolution perhaps, but without relevance in the modern age. Some acts were distasteful too such as searching a lunatic lawman for his car keys and his badge. Continuing to avert his eyes from the battered face and the two-toned eyelids, Junior found the keys in an exterior pocket of the sports jacket. Their credentials were tucked in an interior pocket, a single-fold leather holder containing a shiny badge and a photo ID. He dropped the holder on top of the club-smothered shot nurse. Now out of the kitchen, along the hall and up the stairs, two at a time in a Victoria's bedroom. Not with the intention of snaring a preferred souvenir, merely to find a blanket. In the kitchen again, Junior spread the blanket on the floor, to one side of the blood. He rolled vanadium onto the blanket and drew the end of it together, fashioning a sled with which to drag the detective out of the house. The cop weighed too much to be carried any distance. The blanket proved effective. The decision to drag him was wise, and the whole process was value neutral. An unfortunately bumpy ride for the deceased, along the hallway, through the foyer, across the entry threshold, down the porch steps, across a lawn dappled with pine shadows and yellow moonlight, to the gravel driveway. No complaints. Junior couldn't see the lights of the nearest other houses. Either those structures were screened by trees, or the neighbors weren't home. Vanadium's vehicle, obviously not an official police sedan, was a blue 1961 Studebaker Lark Regal. A dumpy and inelegant car. It looked as though it had been designed specifically to complement the stocky detective's physique. When Junior opened the trunk, he discovered the fishing gear and two wooden carriers full of carpenter's tools left no room for a dead detective. He would be able to make the body fit only if he dismembered it first. He was too sensitive a soul to ever be able to take either a handsaw or a power saw to a corpse. Only madmen were capable of such butchery. Hopeless lunatics like Ed Gein, 
out there in Wisconsin, arrested just seven years ago when Junior had been 16. Ed, the inspiration for Psycho, had constructed mobiles out of human noses and lips. He used human skin to make lampshades and to upholster furniture. His soup bowls had once been human skulls. He ate the hearts and selected other organs of his victims, wore a belt fashioned from nipples, and occasionally danced under the moon while masked by the scalp and face of a woman he had murdered. Shivering, Junior slammed the trunk lid and warily surveyed the lonely landscape. Black pine spread bristled arms to the charry night, and the moon cast down a jaundiced light that seemed to obscure more than it illuminated. Junior was free of superstition. He believed in neither gods nor demons, or anything in between. Nevertheless, with Gein in mind, how easy it was to imagine that a monstrous evil lurked nearby, watching, scheming, driven by an unspeakable hunger. In a century torn by two world wars, marked by the boot heels of men like Hitler and Stalin, the monsters were no longer supernatural, but human, and their humanity made them scarier than vampires and hell-born fiends. Junior was motivated not by twisted needs, but by rational self-interest. Consequently, he opted to load the detective's body into the cramped backseat of the Studebaker with all limbs intact and head attached. He returned to the house and extinguished the three blown glass oil lamps on his living room coffee table. Out, as well, the silk shade lamp. In the kitchen, he fussily avoided the blood and stepped around Victoria to switch off both ovens. He killed the gas flame under the large pot of boiling water on the cooktop. After clicking off the kitchen lights, the hall light, and a light in the foyer, he had pulled shut the front door, leaving the house dark and silent behind him. He still had work to do here. Properly disposing of Thomas Vanadium, however, was the most urgent piece of business. A sudden cold breeze blew down out of the moon, bearing a faint alien scent, and the black boughs of the trees billowed and rustled like witches' skirts. He got behind the wheel of the Studebaker, started the engine, did a hard 180-degree turn, using more lawn than driveway, and cried out in terror when Vanadium moved noisily in the back seat. Junior jammed on the brakes, slammed the gear shift in the park, threw open the door, and plunged from the car. He spun around to face the menace, loose gravel shifting treacherously underfoot. Chapter 38 Baseball cap in hand, he stood on Agnes's front porch this Sunday evening. A big man with the demeanor of a shy boy. Miss Lampion? That's me. His leonine head and bold features, framed by golden hair, should have conveyed strength. But the impression he might have made was compromised by a fringe of bangs that curled across his forehead. A style unfortunately reminiscent of a feat emperors of ancient Rome. I've come here to... His voice trailed away. Considering his formidable size, his clothes ought to assert the image of a real masculinity. Boots, jeans, red flannel shirt. His ducked head, slumped posture, and shuffling feet were reminders, however, that many boys do, too, dress this way. Is something wrong? Agnes encouraged. He met her eyes, but has once shifted his gaze to the porch floor again. I've come to say how sorry I am. How miserably sorry. During the ten days since Joey's passing, a great many people had conveyed their condolences to Agnes. But until this man, she had known all of them. I'd give anything if it hadn't happened, he said earnestly. And now, a tortured note wrung wet emotion from his voice. I only wish it had been me who died. 
His sentiment was so excessive that Agnes was speechless. I wasn't drinking, he said. That's proven, but I admit being reckless, driving too fast in the rain. They cited me for that, for running the light. Suddenly, she understood. You're him. He nodded, and his face flushed with guilt. Nicholas Deed. On her tongue, the name was as bitter as a dissolving aspirin. Nick, he suggested, as though any reason existed for her to be on a first-name basis with the man who killed her husband. I wasn't drinking. You've been drinking now, she softly accused. Had just a few. Yeah. For courage. To come here. To ask your forgiveness. His request felt like an assault. Agnes almost rocked backwards as though struck. Can you? Will you? Forgive me, Miss Lampion? By nature, she was unable to hold fast resentment, couldn't nurture a grudge, and was incapable of vengeance. She had forgiven even her father, who had put her through hell for so long, who had blighted the lives of her brothers, and who had killed her mother. Forgiving was not the same as condoning. Forgiving did not mean that you had to exonerate or forget. I can't sleep half the time, Deed said, twisting the baseball cap in his hands. I've lost weight, and I'm so nervous. Jumpy. In spite of her nature, Agnes could not find forgiveness in her heart this time. Words of absolution clotted in her throat. Her bitterness dismayed her, but she could not deny it. Your forgiveness won't make any of it right, he said. Nothing could but it might start to give me a little peace. Why should I care whether you have any peace, she asked. And she seemed to be listening to a woman other than herself. Deed flinched. No reason. But I sure never meant you or your husband any harm, Miss Lampion. And not your baby either. Not little Bartholomew. At the mention of her son's name, Agnes stiffened. There were numerous ways for Dee to learn her baby's name, yet it seemed wrong for him to know it, wrong to use it. The name of this child he had nearly orphaned, had almost killed. His alcohol sour breath washed over Agnes as he asked, How's Bartholomew doing? Is he okay? Is the little guy in good health? Jacks of spades and quartet rose in her mind. Remembering the ringleted yellow hair of the faithful figure on the playing cards, Agnes fixated on Deed's blonde bangs, which curled across his broad brow. There's nothing here for you, she said, stepping back from the door in order to close it. Please. Miss Lampion. Strong emotion carved Deed's face. Anguish, perhaps. Or anger. Agnes wasn't able to interpret his expression, not because he was in the least difficult to read, but because her perceptions were skewed by sudden fear and a flood of adrenaline. Her heart seemed to spin like a flywheel in her breast. Wait, said Deed, holding out one hand either beseechingly or to block the door. She slammed it shut before he could stop her, whether he had intended to stop her or not, and he engaged a deadbolt lock. Beveled, cracked, distorted, divided into petals and leaves, Deed's face beyond the leaded glass, as he leaned closer to try and peer inside, was the countenance of a dream demon swimming up out of a nightmare lake. Agnes ran to the kitchen, where she had been working when the doorbell rang, packing boxes of groceries to be delivered with the honey raisin pear pies that she and Jacob had baked that morning.
Barty's bassinet was beside the table. She expected him to be gone, snatched by an accomplice who had come in the back way while Dita distracted her at the front door. The baby was where she had left him, sleeping serenely. To the windows then, drawing all the blinds securely down, and still, irrationally, she felt watched. Trembling, she sat beside the bassinet and gazed at him with such love that the force fit Atwa rocked him awake. She expected Dee to ring the doorbell again. He did not. Imagine me thinking you'd be gone, she said to Barty. Your old mum is losing it. I never made a deal with Stillskin, so there's nothing for him to collect. She couldn't kid herself out of her fear. Nicholas Deed was not the knave. He had already brought all the ruin into their lives that he was going to bring. But a knave there was, somewhere, and his day would come. To avoid making Maria feel responsible for the dire turn of mood when red aces were followed by disturbing jacks, Agnes had pretended to take her son's card-told fortune lightly, especially the frightful part of it. In fact, a coldness had twisted through her heart. Never before had she put faith in any form of prognostication. In the whispery falling of those twelve cards, however, she heard the faint voice of truth. Not quite a coherent truth, not quite as clear a message as she might have wished, but a murmur that she couldn't ignore. Tiny Bartholomew wrinkled his face in his sleep. His mother said a prayer for him. She also sought forgiveness for the hardness with which she had treated Nicholas Deed, and she asked to be spared the visitation of the knave. 916-633-1537, Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Leave a review on Spotify, leave a review on uh, Podchaser, copy and paste that in the Apple Podcast, and copy and paste that into the Good Pods app. You could donate to the show at patreon.com slash single simulcast, or on the Good Pods app, there's a tip jar, or at uh, buymeacoffee.com slash sscast. Thank you so much for listening. I greatly appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'm going to holler at you later. Peace. to Ratchet Book Club is by That Kid Garan and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast. Don't know my name, did you say?